Well, good morning. Way to go, Ags. Great job cheering them on, 12th man. I heard it was loud and exciting, so good job. Way to stand. My name is Marty Scott. I am assistant college pastor overseeing missions and small groups, and this is Go Week 2015. It's our missions week, and so here I am speaking. Our missions week as a church, we view missions as part of what we're about. We take the uh, Great Commission very seriously, and so every year we have two Sundays. We have a week that we fully dedicated dedicate to missions and talking about missions, giving opportunities to, to go do missions. And so at the end of this service, I'm going to be talking through a lot of what this week looks like, and then I'll give you some of the, some of the opportunities that are coming up for you to participate in Go Week this year. So if you don't recognize me, that's okay, but most of you would probably recognize me from my two boys. Uh, If you ever stick around for the end of the service, uh, mine are the two boys that are usually running around in circles in the back like two kids um, that are crazy. They run, they hand random things to people because that's what I ask them to do, and uh, and they love it. But just to show you how silly they are, I have this video of my three-year-old Andrew right here. Here's, here's the thing. That was actually a really efficient trip from our living room to the bathroom. Uh, generally, I'll say, hey, buddy, let's go to the bathroom or um, let's go take a bath. And it could be 10 minutes before we actually make it in there. What I'll say, I'll say, let's go. And immediately, his first thought is to run to the couch and hide under the cushions. So he goes in there and I grab him by the ankles and I pull him out of there and, and I direct him to the, uh, to the bathroom and we'll start going and we'll get to the hall. And instead of going left to our bathroom, he turns right into his room and he'll go into his room, and he'll pick up a toy. So I'll go, and I'll grab the toy, and I'll put it up, and I'll redirect him to the bathroom. And we'll start walking down the hall, and he finally makes it to the bathroom. But every time, this little smirk comes across his face, and he darts into the closet. And he closes the door, and he'll hide in the closet, even though I watched him go into the closet. So then I have to go in, and I open the closet, and I pretend like I don't know where he is, and then I find him and pull him out. And eventually, five, ten minutes after we set out on this journey... He actually makes it to the potty. It's a good thing that we start early because he would definitely go before we made it there every time if we didn't start early. Um, and most of the time, it's, it's just silly. It's fun. I enjoy it. I play along with him. Uh, but every once in a while, it's just really frustrating. I'll be tired or I'll be in a hurry and I get frustrated that it takes so long for this, what should be a 20-second trip. You know, it should take 20 seconds and it takes much longer And it's frustrating because I know that he knows what he's supposed to be doing. He's done the trip in 20 seconds. He's made it from the living room to the bathroom in 20 seconds. Um, But what happens is almost every time, one of two things. Either one, he just disobeys. You know, he's just like, I don't want to go potty. I don't want to go take a bath. So I'm going to run the opposite direction as fast as I can. And I'll do it laughing to make it seem like I'm just making a joke, you know? But here's the thing, that's completely normal for a three-year-old. The other thing that might happen is he'll say, yeah, let's go, let's go potty. Like, like this time, it, it kind of clicked, but what happens is on the way, he becomes incredibly distracted. He becomes distracted by the couch or by his toys or by the closet. Um, and so along the way, it takes forever for him to meet our goal because he's so distracted. He knows what he should be doing, but everything around him distracts him. In this semester, as I've been studying Philippians, 
I've been growing more and more convicted that it's not just my three-year-old that's distracted, but it's, it's me too. Um, I'm just as distracted or, or maybe even just as disobedient as he, and he is. Because I know what my goals are. I know what I'm called to be doing. And yet so often, instead of doing it, instead of pursuing that, I get distracted along the way by what's comfortable, by what's convenient, or I just choose to do flat out what is easiest. And what we see in Philippians is that what we're called to do is participate in the progress of the gospel. Paul gives us this. You are called to participate in the progress of the gospel. That is our goal. That is our purpose. But along the way, we become so distracted by the world. Along the way, we become so distracted by what's easy. And so we're going we're gonna to be studying Philippians 1 this morning. So if you want to turn there, and we're going to look at what exactly Paul has to say about participating in the progress of the gospel. And while you turn there, I'm going to give you a little bit of, of, uh, of context. So turn to Philippians 1. Uh, Paul in Philippians, he's, in, uh, he's imprisoned. So he, he calls it imprisoned. Uh, what's really happening is he's under house arrest. Uh, so house arrest, he's actually, from what I understand, renting an apartment that he has to stay in. He's not allowed to leave. He talks about being in chains. chains. So we can assume he kind of has chains on his ankles. So he has to move around his apartment kind of like that. But he can accept visitors. So Timothy's with him. It, the letter is from Paul and Timothy. Uh, so Timothy's with him. Other people visit him while he's uh, under house arrest. And then we also see that house arrest means that he has this constant rotation of um, what's called praetorian guards or these elite guards that are constantly in his apartment with him, guarding him, making sure he doesn't leave. So that's Paul's situation. And then he's writing to the Philippians. And the Philippians are one of the few churches that aren't blowing it. So uh, typically a one of Paul's letters is like, hey, you guys are blowing it, you're failing, here's how, step up. Um, but to the Philippian church, he's writing a thank you letter. So he's thanking the Philippians for their prior uh, partic- participation in the gospel. He's saying, hey, uh, great work. They've, they've given to him, they supported him in his ministry. And then he's, he's looking at them and saying, you're growing, you're thriving as a church, keep it going. But then he's also looking forward to this oncoming persecution that they're going to face. And he's saying, as this persecution comes, as your city turns on you, as your culture turns on you, you need to dig in and continue to participate in the progress of the gospel. You need to dig in and to continue to look to how you can participate and stand firm in the gospel. And so that's what Paul's setting up in Philippians 1. So we're going to start in verse 12. Philippians 1 verse 12 says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. My first point is this. All circumstances are an opportunity to participate in the gospel, in the progress of the gospel. All circumstances are an opportunity. Paul is sitting in house arrest. He's sitting in jail with chains. It would be very easy for him to say, this is a hindrance to the gospel. So I'm going to sit here. I'm going to relax until it's time for me to leave. And then I can begin 
to share the gospel again. I can, again, I can begin to participate in the progress of the gospel. He could view his chains as, as a hindrance to the gospel, but instead he's sitting there in jail and he says, this is the circumstances I'm in. Who can I share the gospel with? Who can I minister to in this circumstance that God has put me in? And so he looks up and there is a praetorian guard. And so he begins to share his faith with them. So that eventually as they rotate through, all of these guards know who Paul is. All of these guards know what Paul is about, that he's about the gospel. Not only that, but as the church in Rome comes and visits him, he encourages them to go out and share the gospel more so that even in this change, he's continuing to participate in the progress of the gospel. This is because Paul doesn't allow his circumstances to decide his actions. Paul allows his beliefs to decide his actions no matter what the circumstances are. Paul's beliefs are what drive his actions. And it doesn't matter what situation, what circumstance he's in. This is where we get the famous verse that we've all heard of in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Typically, we view this as the football player verse, right? It's the verse that the players, they put on their face and the, the black sticker that's there for some reason, or they write it on their cleats. And the idea is that uh, if I have Philippians 4.13 and I believe that God will strengthen me in all things, that I'll be able to run faster, or I'll be able to jump higher, I'll be able to score more points. But put yourself in that quarterback's place where he's sitting there and he's like, all right, I have Philippians 4.13 on my face and it's fourth down. Let's do this thing. And then he looks up and he's about to snap the ball and both guys, both defensive players looking at him, they both have it there too. (laughs) What's gonna happen? It's two on one. It's looking bad for him at that point. The reason that's such an issue is because that's not what this verse is about. This verse is looking at Paul's circumstances. It's looking at his situation and Paul's saying that no matter what is happening, In my life, whether I'm shipwrecked, whether I'm imprisoned, whether I'm being stoned, whether I'm being kicked out of city after city, whether I'm poor or whether I have money, my situation does not decide my actions. It's God who strengthens me. So I can do all of these things, all of these circumstances, and I can thrive in them because it's God who strengthens me and it's God who gives me my purpose, my vision. It's God who gives me my identity. And Paul's identity is in sharing the gospel. It's in participating in the progress of the gospel. So in all of these circumstances that he's in, he stops and he says, what opportunity do I have? He stops and he looks around him and he says, how does God want me to participate in the progress of the gospel in this city, in this situation, in this house arrest? What I, what I often hear, what's common for us, though, is instead of allowing our beliefs to decide our circumstances, we do the opposite. We allow our circumstances to decide our beliefs. And so what often happens is we decide that we're too busy to go out and make Christ known. We, we don't know any non-believers, and so we can't participate in the progress of the gospel. Or we're not properly trained. We don't, we don't know what we should be doing. We don't We're not confident in sharing our faith. And so we make up these circumstances or we allow our circumstances of busyness 
of, of only knowing Christians, of not being trained, we allow those circumstances to decide what we do in participating with the gospel. Instead of stepping back and saying, God, I know I'm busy. I know I have a lot going on, but I have to study. So who can I study with and get to know and build a relationship with? God, I'm busy, but I do have to ride the bus from here to campus. So who can I sit next to to share the gospel with? I don't know any non-believers, so God, open my eyes to know who I can meet. Open my eyes to know who in class I can go and sit next to. Or at work, God, it's inconvenient. It's no fun to get into the dirtiness of the person that I'm working with. But God, help me to have the opportunity to actually get to know them, to dig into their life. God places you in your circumstances specifically to participate in the progress of the gospel in people's life. So we need to be willing to ask God, what is it in this situation? What is it in this circumstance that's giving me an opportunity to participate in the progress of the gospel? All circumstances are an opportunity to participate in the progress of the gospel. Then we come to verse 15. And Paul is reflecting back um, in 14, he says uh, that far more have courage to speak the word of God without fear. So in 15, he says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. And this is a, a strange situation that's going on, in that some people are, are motivated in Paul's imprisonment to go and share the gospel to cause Paul distress. So there's this weird group, and, and I don't know what's actually happening here, but there's this group that's like, yeah, let's, let's go and preach the gospel and harm Paul. And uh, we really, within this context, we don't know specifically what's happening. But we do know Paul's reaction to it. Paul says that whether they're doing it in pretense or in truth, I rejoice that, Paul, or that Christ is being proclaimed. And the reason Paul can rejoice in this situation is because of what he believes about God. Because of his belief in God's sovereignty. He's probably thinking to... To Isaiah 55, Isaiah 55 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God here is saying that when my word goes out, when I send my word out, it will accomplish my will. It will accomplish what I desire. And so Paul's watching these people preach the word. He's watching them share Christ and whether their their motives are good or bad. Paul, trusting in God and his sovereignty, is willing to rejoice in this situation because he knows that God's will is being done. And if we pull this up another layer, I would say that we can trust that God's will is being done, not just if our motives are good or bad, but God's will is being done whether or not we participate, participate 
or not. God in his sovereignty is going to do his will. And participation in the progress of the gospel becomes an opportunity for us to take part in something great. We have the opportunity to be a part of something amazing, of something great, and that is the opportunity that God is setting forth. He's already doing great things in the people around you, in the city, in the world, and we have the opportunity to take part in it. We have the opportunity to participate. When I was, uh, when I was in seminary, I worked at Starbucks, and I worked at a, a really affluent Starbucks, and and because it was an affluent Starbucks, I got to know a lot of uh, celebrities and famous people. It was, it was pretty cool. Uh, I met Val Kilmer, um, the Wilson brothers, Luke and Owen Wilson. Um, lots of fun people, Troy Aikman, Tony Romo. Um, it was a lot of fun working there. Every, you never knew, who would, never knew who would come in. Uh, and one weekend, the NBA All-Star Game was happening in Dallas. And... Um, and so I knew that because the All-Star Game was here, there were going to be uh, tons of celebrities, tons of famous people in Dallas. And so I figured at some point on Sunday morning after the game, somebody famous would come into work. And so I was, I was pumped about work that day. And so I sat there behind the bar making drinks all morning, just kind of staring at the doors, waiting for somebody to come in, and nobody did. Uh, nobody ever walked through those, those doors. And so I was disappointed. And eventually about an hour, uh, two hours before my shift ended, my manager came and said, hey, Marty, if you want to go home, you can. It's slow. And I was like, oh, but what if somebody famous shows up? Uh, and so I was like, well, but I want to go home. And so I ended up leaving and uh, I got home. And after being home for a little bit, one of my coworkers called me and he said, you would not believe who came in this morning. He's like, so I was sitting there behind the bar and I look up and everybody had their phones up. And I was like, what's going on? And I look over and Arnold Schwarzenegger had walked through the door. And I was like, Arnold Schwarzenegger, are you kidding me? Arnold Schwarzenegger had walked into our store. And so he walks up to the counter and there's this really old guy who was working the register that morning. And literally, Arnold walks up and he goes, Arnie, hey, what's up? It's like, he called Arnold Schwarzenegger, the governator, Arnie? Like, that's what he said. And so Arnie uh, ordered a cappuccino and uh, walked around to the counter and my friend was working the bar, and he made his cappuccino, and uh, he handed it up there, and, and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger picks it up, and he pops the lid open, looks at it, looks back at my friend, sets it back on the counter, and said, more foam. <laughs> <laughs> so my friend's like, okay. <laughs> so he remakes the drink to Arnold's satisfaction with more foam, hands it back up there, and Arnold leaves, and that was it. They both blew it. Here's the thing. For a barista, I cannot think of any higher calling than to make Arnold Schwarzenegger's cappuccino. And I guarantee you, I would have made it with enough foam. My foam would have been to his satisfaction. Or at the least, I would have been working the register and I would have not called him Arnie. But here's the thing. I would never know. I had the opportunity to be a part of something great, something amazing, I had the opportunity to reach the pinnacle of barista, but I left. I chose not to take that opportunity. I knew that there was a chance, and I went home. God is doing something great. God is doing something amazing around you, and you have this chance 
to join him. You have this opportunity to say, God, what is it? I often find myself uh, asking God, what good can I do in this person's life? God, what good can I do in the world? What I've realized is that's, that's the wrong question to be asking. Instead of asking what good can I do, the question I need to be asking is, God, what amazing life change are you about to do in this person's life? And how can I join in with you? He's working in the person next to you on the bus. He's working in the person sitting by themselves in class. He's working in their lives. And we have this opportunity to say, God, how can I join in with you in that? He's working in this city. He's doing amazing things here in College Station. And we can ask God, how can I join in that? He is changing the world. He's doing incredible things across the globe. And all we have to do is say, God, what amazing thing are you doing on the other side of the world and how can I join you? Right now, there's a crisis in Syria and people are fleeing Syria into Europe at rates that we've never seen. People are fleeing and they're becoming refugees in Europe. And, and about a month ago, we had some friends of ours that are Greek uh, in town and, and we were having lunch with them. And, and these friends, they are, uh, they're uh, part of our mo- crew movement, our crew partnership in Greece. And so we're meeting with them and we're asking them about the refugees. And they said, in the midst of this crisis, something amazing is happening. Hundreds and thousands of people are coming into Greece and these Muslims are hearing the gospel for the first time. They're being chased out of their country by Muslims. They're showing up in Greece. They're being loved by Christians. They're hearing the gospel and they're trusting Christ. In the middle of this tragic crisis, God is doing something amazing. He's doing something incredible in the lives of these people. And this summer, we're sending two teams to Greece to participate in what God is doing, to be a part of this great work that God is already doing in Greece. And to be a part of it, all we have to do is say, God, I will take this step of faith. God, I want to join you in something amazing. Participation in the progress of the gospel is an opportunity to take part in something great. And it just takes a choice from you to join in with him. Coming back to Philippians, in verse 19, Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This, uh, this passage has a, a really interesting uh, interpretive issue. You see deliverance, I put salvation in parentheses right next to it. That's because the word for deliverance is the same word for salvation. It's soteria. Uh, it can either be deliverance, salvation. The context is kind of what decides the meaning here. And so we have to ask ourselves as we read this passage, delivered or saved from what? What is Paul talking about here? And the first, the first thought is that he's talking about deliverance from being in prison. He's talking about being saved from imprisonment. But as we look at the context, he probably isn't talking about his imprisonment. 
And so what I did was I went through and I started crossing things out. I would recommend that you not do that in your Bible because it looks like that's not inspired. It is, um, and it's important to the passage. But if you want to get down to the bare bones of what this passage is saying, what this paragraph is saying, you have to begin to, to kind of cross out the, um, the descriptive phrases. And so what you get when you do that is this. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this imprisonment will turn out to my salvation or deliverance, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul is seeking to be saved from, the sh- from shame, from shame in anything. And instead of being ashamed that, he, that Christ would be exalted in his body. Paul isn't worried about being in prison or out of prison. Paul isn't worried about life or about death. For Paul, to live as Christ and to die as gain. What Paul is concerned about is that in all things, Christ would be exalted in his body. What's happening here is Paul is going to be standing before a judge. And that judge is going to say, Paul, do you bow down and confess that Caesar is Lord and God? And Paul's hoping that in that moment, he will be able to remain faithful. Because if he, if he doesn't, that's to his shame. For Paul, the shame is unfaithfulness in that moment, in that trial. Participation in the progress of the gospel should be our primary goal in all circumstances. That should be our driving force. Paul isn't concerned about life or death or imprisonment. He's concerned solely about Christ being exalted in his body in all situations. And so he's able to make a statement as crazy as for to me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Here's the thing. I, I am not here. Um, I'm not at the place in my walk where I can realistically say, this is my attitude for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I'm not at the place where I can say that in anything, God, whether life or death, let Christ be exalted in my body. I would, I would, I would doubt that most of us are at that place. It's because this, this is a journey. This is, this is daily, continuing Um, to make this decision for Christ to be exalted in our body so that over years of walking with Christ, we can get to this place. I would have to assume that that Paul didn't get to this place overnight where he can make a statement like this, but that it was decades of Paul being shipwrecked. It was decades of Paul being persecuted, of him sacrificing, of Paul not sure where his next meal would come. And in those moments, wrestling with God, in those moments, wrestling with what he believed about God, wrestling with his own faith and his own faithfulness to where now, years and decades later in his life, sitting in jail, he can make this statement for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. But as as long as it takes him to get there, he's still setting this as our goal. He's still setting this as the goal for the Philippians and for us, that we should get to this place 
We should strive for this mindset, for to live as Christ and to die as gain. But it's not just a journey. A part of that journey is a daily decision. A daily decision that in no matter what circumstance we are in, we choose to say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. For me, I'm willing to sacrifice being a little bit uncomfortable in this conversation. For me, I'm willing to sacrifice the inconvenience of getting into the dirty laundry of my coworker or putting down my phone and talking to the person next to me. Here's the thing. Those are uh, small, small sacrifices. Our, our culture, what we're seeing is that soon we're going to be asked to make greater sacrifices. We can look in Oregon a few days ago where uh, it's hard to imagine, but those were students just like us who are sitting there walking to class. And for them, this decision was placed in front of them that whether by life or by death, will Christ be exalted in my body? For them to live as Christ and die as gain, they were presented with this huge question. Will you remain faithful in this moment? And they chose yes. And it's probably because over the course of their life, they had daily made these decisions. And now in this ultimate moment of their lives, they said, yes, Christ will be exalted in my body. And that's, that's what's happening in our world. And it makes a situation like an uncomfortable conversation kind of seem like nothing. When, uh, in 2007, I went to an Arab partnership that we have where we minister to... Uh, we ministered to Muslim students. And when I was there, uh, we got to know this guy and this girl who were Muslim students. And they invited me and two girls on our team to come over to their house for dinner. Their mom was going to prepare this huge meal and we were able to come and, and, and enjoy it with them. And we, uh, so we got there and it smelled incredible. We walked in and uh, it was food that I had never heard of, never seen. And I was so excited I was so excited to have this feast. And so while she was working to prepare the meal, we sat in the living room and we were just, we were talking about what we enjoy, getting to know each other. Um, And at some point, the mom walked in and she didn't speak any English. And uh, she walked in and she said, dinner's ready. And her daughter translated. And so we got up to walk in and, and we stopped because the mom and the daughter started arguing back and forth about something. We couldn't understand, but eventually the daughter turned to us and she said, just let you know, uh, my mom... Uh, says that there's this tradition, this, this custom that we do where before every meal, we say the shahada. And the shahada is um, something like, there's only one God who is Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And my mom wants all of us to say that in Arabic prior to, before this meal. And so, so she wants us to repeat this. <laughs> and she says, yeah, that, that's what my mom wants. And uh, so I, I froze, saying um, like, what, what do I do here? And, and I would like to say, I wish that I had said in that moment something like, I respect that. For us as Christians, we pray to God and we thank God for providing this food. And we also, we thank God for providing his son um, who gives us eternal life and forgiveness of sins. But in that moment, I stopped and I looked at the girls who were both staring at me, waiting for me to do something. And uh, And I I looked at them and I said, you know what? This doesn't actually mean anything. We don't actually believe any of what they're saying. 
So let's just go ahead and say it. Let's avoid this, this awkward moment. Let's avoid this uncomfortable situation in this living room. And let's just repeat after them. And so we did. Uh, we repeated the Shahada in Arabic. I don't remember anything of what I said. And, and here's the thing. Uh, I didn't become Muslim at that moment. Uh, nothing about my faith changed. But it was this moment, this moment where I had this opportunity to choose to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I had this opportunity to stand up and to face what's uncomfortable, face what was awkward and say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Not Allah, not Muhammad. And I didn't. This was the situation that the Philippians, that Paul were facing as well. Their city was telling them, confess, that, confess Caesar to be Lord and Savior, to bow down to him. And Paul was saying, look, Philippians, this is coming. And in that moment, Pray that Christ will be exalted, whether it means life for you, whether it means death for you, whether it means imprisonment. Pray that you would stand up and progress and participate in the progress of the gospel. Pray that you would stand up and that Christ would be exalted in your body. That's my last point, that participation in the progress of the gospel should be our prime... That's not right. Participation in the progress of the gospel requires sacrifice. Paul is encouraging the Philippians to do this because this is exactly what Jesus Christ did. In Philippians 2, verse 5, Paul tells the church, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was God and he existed for all eternity in heaven, in the comforts of heaven, as king of heaven. And he made this decision to leave that and to come to earth, to leave what was comfortable and what was easy, and to come to earth and to be made man. And he, he came uh, and he died on the cross for us. He existed in heaven where for all eternity the angels surrounded him and worshipped him. He left that worship to come to earth where he was hated, where he was persecuted, where he was crucified. He left heaven where for all eternity he had been in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he came to earth and he walked a path that led to this moment on the cross where he was completely and utterly separated from the Father. And that perfect fellowship was severed. And he did that because he viewed our salvation. He viewed our life as more important than his own comfort. And that, that is the, uh, the example that Paul gives to us and to the Philippians. That whatever sacrifice we're called to do, it pales in comparison to the opportunity to bring life. For the opportunity to participate in giving someone life, to bringing someone out of darkness and into light.
it might be uncomfortable. It might be inconvenient. It might be sacrificial. But at the end, participation in the gospel is always worth it. It's always worth it. My guess is when I talk about this, when I say it, um, if you're like me, you yearn. You yearn for this to be who you are. You strongly desire that every day you're making these decisions. Every day you are pursuing the reality that Christ be exalted in your body in everything. That is your desire. But what happens, if you're like me, what happens is you become distracted. You become distracted by what's easy. You're walking down the road and you say, I don't have time to have that conversation. I don't have time to build that relationship. And you build up these excuses. You say, I I just don't. I'm too busy. I don't have time. And you allow your circumstances to decide your actions. And here's the thing. This is always what will happen unless we decide to do something unless we decide to change this attitude, unless we decide to change this mindset so that the gospel does become a a primary goal in all circumstances. It takes a decision. And I'll tell you, this is one of the huge reasons why we do summer missions. It's not just to participate. It's obviously you get to participate in the progress of the gospel. You get to go where God is doing amazing things in East Asia, in Greece, in Tradewinds, in Kansas City. God is doing incredible things in these cities that we partner with. And you get to participate in the progress of the gospel in these places. But not only that, but you change. Your life changes. What happens is that you're faced with this moment where you have to say, God, I will step out into what's comfortable. In faith, I will step out into what's uncomfortable, what's inconvenient, for the sake of the gospel. And so you choose to have that uncomfortable conversation with your parents. I've been there. My parents hated the idea, but I had that uncomfortable conversation with them. You choose to have those awkward phone calls where you call people to ask them to partner with you to go. And it's hard, but you get to to be a part and witness God's faithfulness in those moments, in those people's lives. And then you get over there and every moment of every day is completely focused on participating in the progress of the gospel. It's completely focused on exalting Christ in your body. And what will happen is you will become physically exhausted. You will become emotionally a wreck, but spiritually you will become more alive, um, more excited than what you have ever imagined. Spiritually, you will realize that participation in the gospel is life. It is fulfilling the purpose that you are called to do. And in the midst of being exhausted, you say, I don't care. I don't care that I'm exhausted. It doesn't matter. I want to go and I want to meet another person. I want to go and I want to build another relationship. What happens is you become emotionally in a wreck and you're crying And you say, I'm going to wipe these tears away. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go. I'm going to go out again today and I'm going to share the gospel again. Because spiritually, it's exciting. Spiritually, you are fulfilled and you're filled. And then what happens is you come back here. And you're sitting on the bus again. And this time, 
you look at the person next to you and you say, well, a month ago, I would have had a, per- a conversation with this guy. So you put your phone down and you say, hey, my name's Marty. Or you'll walk into class and instead of thinking, where are my friends? You're trained now to say, where's somebody sitting by themselves? How can I have a conversation with them? Whereas before you would say, I'm just not confident in being able to share the gospel, so I'm just going to walk the other way. Now you say, I spent an entire summer sharing my faith. I can do this. I can walk into this conversation and I can share my faith with this person. That's why we do summer missions right there. But it takes that initial step of faith to say, God, I don't just want to sit in this rut and keep going in this direction. I want participation to be what I'm about. I want the gospel to be what I'm about. So God, change this. Change me so that that's what I'm doing. Now, going on summer missions, it isn't the only way you can do this. Some of you, um, you don't graduate unless you take summer school. And so I would say, take summer school, graduate. I think that's a good thing. But in the midst of summer school, look for the opportunities. Look for how you can participate, right? Some of you have to work. And in the midst of work, look for those opportunities. Look for how you can participate in that. But for a lot of us, we don't necessarily have something that's keeping us here this summer. So if you want this to be what you're about, then I would challenge you. I would challenge you that look at this summer and think through, could this be that thing which helps me to make participation in the progress of the gospel, who I am? The band is going to come up and they're going to lead us in worship some more. And I want you to think about these two questions while they're leading us in worship. I want you to spend some time praying through these questions and and not just during worship, but write these down. And I want you this week to think through this and to pray through this. First, how can you participate in the progress of the gospel right now? Who is it around me that God is already working in to do great things? And how can I join in with him? How can I have conversations with them at work Whose dirty laundry can I get to know so that I can love them, so that I can pray for them? What opportunities right now is God giving you? And then second, what is keeping me from participating in missions this year? For some of you, you have a good reason. For some of you, it's school, it's work. That's great. Do that. But for some of you, if you were like me 10 years ago, there were a lot of things keeping me from participating. And all of them were really bad reasons. Uh, Really bad reasons to go and do something that would change others' lives and change my life. And so this week, I want you to think through what is keeping me from participating in missions this year? Let me pray. Father, Father, we thank you that you, that you sent your son to be made man and to save us. And that this whole conversation, this whole thing, its foundation is found on Philippians 2.9. It says that for this reason also, you, God, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow 
in those of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, that Lord, that day that's coming is, is our motive, is the reason why we participate. Father, I pray that that, that would be real to us, that we would understand that and that we would be excited for that day but we would also recognize that that day um, won't be exciting for some people. And that's what we want to be a part of, is changing that reality. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you care so much about us, that you would allow us to do this. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.